Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello everyone, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the LSE for today's event, which forms part of the LSE Festival, How Do We Get to a Post-COVID World, uh, which took place this week as a part of the whole year of activities at the LSE, exploring the practical steps we could be taking to shape a better world. My name is Dr. Neela Shamganova, and I am a fellow in History of Empire at the uh, Department of International History at the LSE. I'm very pleased to be here today and to welcome our panel to the LSE. So we're going to start with um, Dr. Imabong Umaren, who is Associate Professor in the Department of International History at the LSE. Her research interests, publications, and teaching focus on histories of race, gender, activism, and political thought in the Caribbean, Britain, and the US, focusing on the modern and contemporary world. Her forthcoming book, Empire Without End, A History of Britain and the Caribbean explores the long interconnected relationship between Britain and the Caribbean, and it received the 2020-2021 British Library Eccles Centre and Hay Festival Writers Award. Our second speaker today will be uh, Dr. Olivia uh, Rutazibwa, uh, uh, who is Assistant Professor in Human Rights and Politics in the Department of Sociology at LSE. She is the former Africa uh, desk editor, journalist and columnist at the Brussels-based uh, quarterly MO magazine, and the author of forthcoming non-academic monograph, The End of the White World. Her research and teaching focuses on the ways to decolonize international solidarity. And our third speaker today is going to be Professor Mike Savage, uh, who is uh, the Martin White Professor of Sociology at the LSE. He is co-founder and former director of LSE International Inequalities Institute, leading the wealth, elites, and tax justice research theme. So, uh, today we'll be discussing the calls for a declaration of the history curriculum and the changes to the way empire is commemorated and discussed, and why this debate matters, and what we should be doing about it. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Festival. I would ask you all to please put your phones on silent as to not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to technical difficulties. Uh, each of the panelists will give a short talk about their particular areas of research, followed by a panel discussion. Uh, we will then open it up to questions from the audience. So without further ado, Olivia, would you like to go next? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm also very excited to be having uh, this conversation in uh, arguably the heart of Babylon. We're all here talking about <laughs> empire and finally we're having the conversation. So I'm not a historian, uh, meaning probably that I won't be as precise mm -hmm. as, <laughs> as we should be, even as academics, but I will bring the conversation um, further into the present as was uh, already uh, forecasted. Um, so I, um, I am a Belgian and a Rwandan national, and I moved to the UK nine years ago. Uh, and the reason why I start with that little detail is that um, when I was trying to teach elements of empire, I was teaching mostly international development studies here at the LSE. I'm teaching uh, human rights and politics, which is not very different in terms of, we have a classroom full of students engaged or committed to make a positive change into the world, right? So I, I want to have our conversation in terms of solidarity from this, most benign place that we can have in the current context uh, and how even there we can't escape necessarily thinking about uh, empire. But in those classrooms, and I used to teach in Portsmouth before, um, whenever I brought up uh, the British empire, students would say, 
but the Belgians and they had Leopold and, and I'm like, yeah, unfortunately I'm also from Belgium and in Belgium people say like, but we were not like the Brits, they owned half of the, of the planet. So, and then actually I, I, um, I bumped into a quote by um, uh, the musician uh, Akala, who, who basically makes that argument, but says, but that's actually a reality boast. What are we talking about when we try and compare all these empires? So I think that's not necessarily what we want to do, or what we're doing today, but trying to think what is this importance of um, highlighting empire in the present? And I say highlighting and not bringing into, it's actually just to underline or underscore how it's not part of just the past, right? But very much the present. So the way I will do it, I have one slide, usually I don't even have slides, um, is actually to dive immediately into the pedagogical aspects of this conversation. Um, and uh, just to illustrate how um, I um, was obviously invited to teach international development studies and it was um, an undergraduate first year module and it used to be called Introduction to the Developing Worlds. And the first week we would uh, obviously highlight how potentially problematic the world developing world is, but then we deconstruct it and whatever. Um, and how um, over the years, and also, you know, uh, kudos to obviously a lot of colleagues, but also administrators that make some changes possible. And I, I shared this also as an encouragement, but how we, we started to feel that um, if we wanted to take empire, and the effect it has on even our ideas of how we could think of solidarity, the fact that we can call it international aid, if you think of it, you go somewhere, you rob a place blind, you turn around, you forget about it, the amnesia, and then you say, I'll come and help you, makes it quite uh, uh, difficult to think like, how, does that, how has that seeped into our institutions, also our universities and how we teach it and how we prepare students to go out into the world and trying to make a change. So we shifted it from introduction to the developing world into the making of the global south. And, you know, I, I won't go over every uh, one of the of the different uh, weeks, but it's just to give you an example where on the one hand before it felt more like you can have a first week where you introduce it and you signpost the, the critical points that you know you might think of, you know, like how it's problematic, how we can categorize the world into developed, underdeveloped, all of that. Then we forget, not 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 just yet, we don't forget about it because then next week we speak very briefly about colonialism, and then we end up uh, having weeks on end where we seemingly have a scientific kind of objective, different types of approaches in which we can study the problem or the challenge of development. So we can have sociological approach, anthropological, all these different approaches. Just to say, I'm not dismissing these approaches. Uh, and, and we kind of took some of these ideas and put that in a, in a methods class. But the idea was to think that if we have to introduce to students engagement with the global South, usually we want to indicate places where there is more poverty than wherever we're speaking from. And if you do not take it seriously to sit down and try and think where that came from, then you almost are programming uh, a whole set of racist ideas where you don't have to explain where the poverty comes from. And then you can actually associate um, problems of, of poverty and conflict, whatever, as a lacking that is, can be locally contained. And then depending on how benign we are or not, we come in and help. And then whatever we do and we fail for the last 60 years after official independence or 70 years can be relegated to technical difficulty that um, needs constant readjustment. It usually needs even more and more and more involvement or prescription or even more money from 
from the global north, meaning that the colonial relationships, especially the power dynamics, are being constantly reproduced, but in the name of the best of our intentions. And it's not always easy, but I try to stick with the non, not just the very uh, cynical aspect of the way I could study the world, right? But even in, in the most benign, the most generous reading of the world, uh, I came to understand how, how deeply and deceptively racist colonial, obviously also capitalist tropes are being reproduced, right? And that makes it even more difficult to name it because if we have to turn to extreme right, white nationalism and say, you guys are racist, it's not difficult, right? But if you have to turn to the UN, all the NGOs we have, but also all the individuals in the classroom that literally pay too much money to be able to train to do that, it's, it's how do you have that conversation? So for me, engaging them with, with, with empire has been a way to, um, in terms of knowledge production, try and think, how can we do that? So the example on the other side of the slides, uh, just the title, The Making of the Global South, um, and actually it's, a, it's um, a colleague of mine in Portsmouth that suggested me this name because I was like, let's call it decolonial or whatever. And like, okay, if we want to make sure that, you know, it passes all the different, it was before everybody got excited about decolonization. But um, then, you know, it, we don't even always have to name it the grand names, but just having in our minds the fact that the poverty or the inequalities we see in the world today, they were made. It was not, it did not mean to happen. Like, uh, it was meant by so many acts, but it was not inevitable, right? And so having to study, it means that you do not accept that as the natural course of things. Um, so that was, so the introduction then is about trying to highlight that a lot of it is made, but at the time that it was made, there were also always so many forces that fought against the unmaking of that global order. And so in that sense, it then becomes uh, an introductory international development studies course that takes history seriously, not necessarily to you know, be correct about all the facts, but to try and think what happens when we keep on forgetting things like the Haitian revolution, but only teach enlightenment through the American and the French one. It's not just, oops, we forgot it, let's add it, but it's once we add it, what happens to our image of humanity, who gets to be human or not. Uh, but also we can defeat empires and we have, and it was not a glitch in, in history. People have done it and people continue to do it. So there you see then that, you know, we started organizing the course uh, around dates. Again, not to say those are the only, so the dates are kind of random to some extent, but they allow us to highlight every week somehow something that happened or that was decided or elaborated to, in, in, in at the service of the making of the global South, meaning the making of the unequal global order that we see today. Uh, and then constantly there was also a counter movement uh, at that time. So we start with obviously Columbus random discovery, you know, everything we can say about it. We show movies about like little clips about um, things like, um, yeah, both uh, Thanksgiving, but also Columbus Day and all these things that are being celebrated in, in the present day as, as just, you know, little tiny things that seem quirky and funny. Uh, but at the same time, also try and think um, it's obviously not in 1492, but in, in, the, in the decades and centuries that passed the, the counter movement. So in that sense, we also study Columbus at the same time that we study the Haitian Revolution. Obviously, for historians, that that time span is slightly too long, <laughs> and it's not. But just having students think about about um, the breakdown of who gets to be human or not at the same time as when people have fought it and written a constitution in which being human 
you know, uh, was 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 redefined as maybe black, but it was so much more inclusive than whatever we had at that time. Uh, that's quite interesting. So throughout, um, you know, you see the dates there. We, we don't have that much time, and we can come back to it. But it's it's just to to give you an example um, of how engaging empire, which might at the first you know first instance feel like is going back to the past, just to make sure that we're correct. It's actually uh, for for me, and I think a lot of people that do engage with empire, it is about trying to think about the step after we've decided to engage empire. What are the implications um, of that? What types of systems that we have today become unacceptable um, once we take that seriously, right? So try and think about, and, and for me, it really helps to ask radically different question when it comes to solidarity, but also when it comes to how we conceive of living together on this planet today and things like borders become untenable. It's not just about being nice to people and letting them in, but there's stuff that needs abolishing that becomes untenable. And the other obviously is the language of aid where we should be talking about reparations if you wanna be nice at all, whatever, but then it's not even about being nice. But when we speak about reparations rather than aid, it means that you cannot set the agenda nor the amount, nor the speed, nor any of that. And that somehow are the things that make me think that, or make me understand why we often don't want to engage with empire beyond maybe mentioning it, if we do it at all, is that it would radically destabilize the world as we know it today. And I, I guess that's the invitation I would end on. Um, I think we should do it. We should do it much more seriously and not just as an add-on, uh, but as a radical overhaul of how we think about the world. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that, Olivia. And uh, to finish off today, uh, Mike, would you like to go next? Well, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I'm very pleased to be on this panel. I'm, I'm going to be continuing a similar theme about the fact that empire is still very much with us. Um, we have, there is a, a, a myth, if you like, that which is somehow, yes, mod, much of modern history was about empire. 19th century, there was a process of decolonization, no, mid 20th century. And we are now in a world of nation states, and we've now moved beyond that imperial history. And I do most of my research on the UK, I'm predominantly uh, work on British society. And one of the things which has increasingly uh, struck me in recent research is actually, it is misconceived to see the UK as a nation in the way it's conventionally seen in terms of liberal, liberal political, political discourse. May claim to be that, may pretend to be that, but in crucial ways, it is continuing to be a British imperial formation. Now, we can discuss that in all sorts of ways. I mean, if, if any of you uh, are UK citizens, you have your passport, you will know that you are subjects. You're not citizens, you're subjects to the Queen. That's one marker of it. In my five minutes, I just want to share some work I've been doing <clears throat> with some colleagues at the LSC on the issue of non-dons, non-domiciled taxpayers. Now, if you were following the news a couple of months ago, you may have uh, been reading some stories <laughs> about the, the wife of Rishi Sunak, uh, Akshata Murti, who turned out to be a non-don. And uh, big, big fuss, how can it be that the wife of one of the most powerful people in the UK who makes economic policy turns out to, to be claiming that they um, are not domiciled in the UK? And I want to speak to this issue about the non-doms, because <clears throat> I think it's very revealing about how key aspects of British society and politics and the economy are still organized on an imperial basis. 
So what, what's it, firstly, what is a non-DOM? Because people, people often, particularly when I, when I talk about this outside the UK, people are very confused as to what a non-DOM is. A non-DOM is someone who lives in the UK for half the year or more, so they have, to pay, they have to file a tax return. So these are not people who are buying property in London but living elsewhere. I'm sure but they're, they're, there are those people too, but a non-DOM is someone basically living their life in the UK, often working in the UK. But they claim on the tax return <clears throat> that their permanent home is somewhere else. Um, and because their permanent home is somewhere else, they get tax breaks. Uh, it means they don't have to pay tax on uh, their overseas um, assets. And it means they're exempt from paying inheritance tax on their UK assets. And this is all puts those people in a different situation to other people who do not pay non-domiciled. Status. If I, if I took a job for three months and worked in uh, Japan, I would have to pay tax on that. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's, it's a striking um, and very important phenomenon. Where did it come from? It comes from the heart of empire. It was introduced in 1799 when income tax was raised for the first time um, by the government as a means of fighting the Napoleonic Wars. And it was a means by which predominantly British aristocratic elites with plantations overseas with holdings in other parts of the world would not be liable to pay tax on those international holdings. So the origins of the non-DOM phenomenon was entirely bound up with history of empire and the history of war and the history of taxation. But the, you know, the important thing is the non-DOM clause, or to be more precise, the remittance basis of taxation, which is linked to it, was not abolished, you know, when we decolonized to use that word, and obviously we wouldn't really believe it, but that notion of, well, the 1950s or whenever we, we, we see that date, this, this clause was not, was not abolished. It's still with us. Um, and indeed, it has become a very powerful mechanism by which the British government sees itself as having a, uh, an economic advantage over its competitors, because the argument is that it draws rich and powerful and wealthy and talented people to the UK because they can, they, they can get this exemption. And that's true actually of Labour governments as well as Conservative governments. Both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, um, in the Labour governments of the other 2000s, looked at the non-dumb regime but didn't abolish it. Um, so, so we have this very powerful mechanism which allows wealthy people to um, get set in tax breaks. And it's, we've also found increasing evidence that it's helping lead UK today becoming one of the most unequal nations in the world, economically unequal now I'm talking about. And here I want to briefly just say two minutes on some research I've been doing with um, some colleagues, Aaron Advani, who's an economist at Warwick University, Andy Summers, who works in the law department here at the LSC, and David Berger, who's a research fellow at the International Inequalities Institute. For the first time, uh, we managed to get access to the taxation data, and we actually managed to go inside the tax archive to use that word and actually find out who non-DOMs are. Now we can't identify names because that would be breaking disclosure rules, but you can look at the patterns. You can look at who, how many people are actually claiming non-DOM status, how much are they earning? And interestingly, which parts of the world do they claim to have these, not, you know, these links to? Which parts of the world do they claim is their vertical as a permanent home? And what we found out was that uh, Non-DOMs are massively disproportionately skewed towards really high earners in the, U in the UK. 40% of 
of people who own over five million pounds in the UK uh, claiming non-dom status. So there's a clearly a very close tie-in between people who are, have extremely high incomes and people using this, this uh, clause to gain these advantages. And that's important because Britain has become, in the 70s, Britain was actually one of the more equal nations in the world economically. Um, they could be wrong, it wasn't equal by any means, but you know, compared to where we are now, economically, it was more equal. Um, over the last 40 years, particularly in the 80s actually, there was a massive shift of um, income inequality towards high earners in the UK, and that hasn't been reversed, if anything it's continued. And the non-DOM clause originating in the, in the 18th century is part of that process. What we also found out uh, using our work was actually many of the key sectors which the UK claims to be economically uh, ahead of the world, or le leading in the world, are those where the non-DOM clause is used a lot. To give an example, if, if you're wondering why is the Premier League football, um, you know, why does that attract more investment than in the, the Spanish or the German equivalent? Well, one reason is because it turns out that um, many sports players, many international sports players are using this non-dumb clause in the UK. We can tell that from our tax analysis. Also, it's true of banking and finance, to use a more you know, obvious example. All we also found out um, is that the permanent homes which most non-doms are claiming were former colonial territories. So the, the ties, the international ties which non-doms have are very much to the territories of the British Empire, the old territories of the British Empire. But more specifically than that, they are to what were called in some quarters the white settler dominions, Australia, Ireland, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa. And this is a kind of world which uh, political theorist Duncan Bell has written about in terms of the, what he calls the dream worlds of race. Even the 20th century, how a certain notion of the white elite, which actually was based across former heartlands of the British Empire, could continue and flourish even in the context of, of decolonization in a, in a formal sense. And that is exactly what we are finding in our Analysis, over half, well over half of non-DOMs have those, those sorts of links. And we also saw, as my final point, um, non-DOMs are massively disproportionately located in London. Um, and indeed, there's an incredibly high link between the areas of London with the highest property prices and where the non-DOMs live. Um, the correlation of 0.9, which if any of you know, know about correlations, that's as high as it could possibly get, really. So in London, which we know, you know, is vastly unequal. Uh, if, you, if any of you try to rent or buy here, you'll know just how incredibly difficult that is. That is very much part of this, of the role of London uh, as a centre for non-DOMs, which is to be understood as, as, a, as a part of the imperial project, ongoing imperial project. So, you know, it's, just, it's really important to recognise that we are still living in an imperial Britain. You know, that has not disappeared. And um, the, whatever we think about the, our economy being dynamic and you know, turbocharged, it, it may be, but it's still fundamentally that kind of complex, which is important.
Thank you so much for that, Mike, and thank you so much for the panel. Uh, so now we're going to open up uh, the discussion from the for some questions from the audience. If you can please uh, let us know your name and if you want affiliation and wait for the stewards with the rowing microphone to come up to you. So if you have any questions, it's uh, open now. Um, the person at the front, please, the very front. Oh, sorry, I thought you had a question. Uh, sure, uh, the person in the second row then. Uh, thank you very much for that wonderful and sincerely brilliant talk. Um, the statues that you were talking about, they're, they're here in the UK and Oxford being the lead opponent, lead area, uh, area where these statues really glorified. And I, I'd argue that Oxbridge is in fact a living monument to slavery and economic rape of the, the history of our history of uh, the empire, the British Empire. So I was just wondering what would your ideas be about dismantling Oxbridge permanently? <laughs> and secondly, if you don't mind, particularly, <laughs> um, how can we have a conversation about empire and not talk about Christianity? And the two are fundamentally fused and one should not be discussed without the other, I believe. So take that as you will. Thank you again for this wonderful talk and I thank the LSE as well. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you for, for those questions. They're quite big ones. I'll start with the <laughs> with the second one first. I mean, you're right. I mean, you can't understand empire without understanding empire's entanglements. It's many entanglements, whether that's with class, with race, and religion, right? All of these things are interconnected, are so yeah, you can't understand one without the other. Right? I definitely would would agree with that. I think. Um, there's so much interesting historical work and also contemporary activism that is trying as much as possible to highlight those things, right? To center our understandings of the complexities of things like empire alongside the complexities of, of religion. Um, um, dismantling Oxbridge is a very big question. I do not have the answer to that. I'm, I'm, I went to the University of Oxford, so I have some... <laughs> some sort of links to the institution previously, but um, I definitely would agree with your, with your point about how, how central universities were, and in particular Oxford and Cambridge, to the project of empire. Um, again, it's that deep entanglement. It's the deep ways in which um, British imperialism really festered into every aspect of, of British society, of academia, how slaveholders left and bequeathed so much money and funding to universities. All of these things again show how, how, how entangled, how deeply implicated um, so many institutions that we oftentimes think are not connected to empire actually really, really are. Um, and how we dismantle that, that's, that's a really big, big project, but I think it's one that's necessary um, to think about because I think it goes to um, this larger question about how and we're addressing empire and why people are so afraid of doing it is because it would literally require the world to be turned upside down. It would literally require a, a, a revolution in many ways, um, a revolution that is both economic as well as, as, well as political and social. Um, but I think there's so much interesting activism that is currently trying to, to address this. Um, and so I think there's a... 
there's a larger group, I guess, um, or larger voices that need to be highlighted in these debates, right? Not just historians and historical work, but sort of contemporary activists, whether that's for reparations, whether that's for the larger movement for, for abolition, right? Can I, um, I just wanted to come back on the, on the Christianity question, because I think it's, it's an important one. It allows us to think, what is it that we need to, to challenge or get rid of, right? Um, and, and I'm not going to advocate in favor against any religion per se or non-religion or, but what I think we often misunderstand is to attach a causal role or damage to Christianity. Whereas I think it's more useful for us to think of how Christianity has been used as one of the many entanglements to oppress control people. And the reason why I say this is that a lot of, um, I think especially in Western Europe, we forget sometimes, but most of the world is doesn't necessarily organize their lives in a very secular way, right? And somehow, um, and as, as I said, I'm from Belgium, um, we pride ourselves on the, the, the separation between church and state and whatever, all of that is a fiction. It's not even true, but or if you take the example of France, for instance, let's fight the headscarf, whatever, to save women, all of that. So we could think that if Christianity was a problem, then those propositions would bring more freedom or more, uh, or potentially less imperial or less oppressive systems. But we can see that, that the opposite so-called of religion manages to do the same, to tell people what to do, what they can't do, whatever. So for me, the invitation would be that if we, if we, if we try and understand what was wrong with the way that Christianity was like shoved through people's throats during the colonial times, it's not necessarily just the content of that religion system of thought, because we can do it. We do it with human rights, we do it with democracy, we do it with good governance. So it's probably more useful to think of um, how much are we convinced of our own opinion and feel both the need and the pride to impose it on others? And then obviously within religious group, within non-religious, we can discuss obviously the content of that, what we stand for. But so that, that's something that I wanted. And I think it ties into when we try to break down this system, it's not just about replacing one set of truths for another one, it's actually to renegotiate how we may move differently in the world and not having this, 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 this privilege, not privilege even, this, the arrogance actually, to think that from one place in the world, we can decide for all the others how they should live their lives. And I think that's a much more challenging one than, than being able to point at whether religion or non-religious way of moving through the world is right or wrong, right? Like how do we negotiate the multiple ways in which we can, we can organize this life? Um, thank you for your question. Mike, is there anything you wanted to add? No, you're sure. Uh, there was a person in row three, I think, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'm from Hackney and um, I'm doing some uh, a project on connecting the Unitarian church that I attend to the Atlantic slave trade. Um, and it's quite a slog and it's very difficult because I've been to the archives and it's... Uh, the paper trails are very thin. Um, I was very interested in this thing on uh, the non-DOMs. Does the non-DOM status explain the rise of the middle class in 18th uh, century England? And did the majority of the people that invested in the plantation systems and owned slaves but never actually uh, step foot in the Caribbean, did they use the non-DOM status in order to keep 
most of the money as a way uh, as a, an emerging middle class, especially with the formation of the squirocracy as well, who also got their money from uh, projects in the in the uh, expansion in the British imperial expansion, for instance, the I give a name John Walsh, who was uh, who had his career in the East Indian East India Company, brought about twenty six thousand pounds after the fall of Bengal and um, used it to purchase property and land uh, across the British Isles. Thank you. Yeah, Mike, would you like to? Uh, so I'm, I'm not a historian of the of the non-dom issue. I mean, the, the non-dom tour wasn't invented until 1799, so it couldn't it couldn't have gone previously back in that. But Emma Bong, do you might know more about this particular? I mean, place? yeah, there were so many obviously absentee planters um, who um, really benefited from their absentee status. I don't know the extent to which this was related to tax and how that then led to this non-dom, but I'm sure there could be some really interesting links um, uh, between the two. One thing, one thing I will say, so a future project I want to do is that there are um, a lot of, lot of legal documents in which uh, our taxation authority has, has basically pursued claims against non-DOM, saying, you, well, really, you are DOM. You really are living in the UK. You, let's not pretend you're a non-DOM. And that's a fascinating material there. And it goes back to the 19th century. So that's absolutely, it has never been looked at systematically. It's going it's to be a hugely interesting area to get into. That's something I want to do in the future. Yeah. Um, uh, you know what? Let's take several questions now. So maybe three questions at a time. So there is a person in the second row over here. Um, my one is more of a comment rather than um, a question as such. Um, I think people need to be careful when, like, they talk about Western Christianity and Christianity that originated in Africa. So Ethiopian Christianity is different from Western Christianity. And then secondly, I'm not really an advocate for Christianity as such, but if we're gonna look at the positives, and I know that's gonna be my talking about Africa, but um, so for instance, um, Chinua Achebe in his book, Things Fall Apart, he talks about the fact that twins in um, Ibo culture were given to the evil forest. And then Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talks about the fact that in her culture, um, basically twins were, like if you had twins, they were, they were taken to the evil forest to die, da 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 da. And um, the twins that she met, which were about 70 or something like that, um, because of Christianity, and it was almost like an enticing tool, like they brought Christianity and they said, you don't have to put your children in the evil forest. You can actually just, take them here and then they so the missionaries basically set up as a scheme almost to allow the um twins to survive in saying that i'll put like a, a buttress that with the yoruba people in nigeria even though Ibo and nigeria in, in the west in the east yoruba people have um uh, more um they like twins a lot. So it's even in as you juxtapose each other, they've got um, like Orishas for twins, which are called Ibeji and whatever. And then you've got Taiwan, Kihindi and all of that kind of thing. So I think is we have to be careful because if we're now talking about Christianity, we can equally talk about Islam and the way that Islam was used in Africa to enslave people. So it's a really 
tricky debate if we're going to start saying one religion, one religion, because we can thus we can throw all religions into the pile. So, as I said to you, I'm not an advocate for Christianity, but there are some good things you can talk about that I introduce. That's my general comment. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Thank you for your comment. Uh, uh, shall we have uh, a person in the second row over here? Um, so one theme I noticed in all three of your presentations was education. And I was wondering how um, you intend or propose to tackle the issue of repatriation, especially of cultural artifacts like in the British Museum and things like that, um, especially for younger children and for like, people who don't really understand the issues at hand. Thank you so much. We'll take one more question and then answer them as a panel. Uh, there is a person at the very back of this, of this section. Thank you for your talk and thank you for your insightful uh, uh, points of view. I was curious if we could expand the ideas a bit and say that any large institution in the style of maybe Max Weber uh, has some evil, has some ideas in it that are inherently bad or racist for those not in the elite group that might be running that institution or anything in, along those lines. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. So would you like to take those three questions slash comments then? Uh, and just to recap, so we had some Christianity, repatriation museums, and large institutions uh, in any order. Um, yeah, so I, I, I won't come back on the, on the Christianity point, but because I think it builds on it, it's, it's to try and complicate that question, even though it's obviously a, an important one. Um, in term, maybe I'll, I'll start with the last one. Um, institutions, evil, and racism. I'm, I'm butchering and simplifying, but the, the, the reason why I'm putting it like this is that um, I think there's a lot of work we need to do in trying to understand better what, apart from the stakes, but what we, what we are trying to highlight when we speak about amnesia, when we speak about denial, about white innocence, about not wanting to talk about either empire or racism, is that I think we've been socialized, especially in, in Western Europe, to, to equate that to bad people as individuals, right? Racism is something we can equate to what Hitler did. Hitler was bad. The only thing that we actually seriously commemorate on a yearly basis is the Holocaust. We should. But the way we do it is by um, enacting so much erasion and amnesia on the rest of the world. And I'm not making a comparative point. I'm actually saying that those forces politician, let me say Churchill or something randomly, that we celebrate as the heroes of those that contributed to the end of the Holocaust are the, are the same, and it's not about them as individuals, but are the same people that were running the institutions that did genocidal um, things centuries before, you know, everything we've talked about, that is at least of the similar order, but is the same nature as what we actually very clearly see as something wrong that we don't want to repeat when we engage the Holocaust, right? So um, 
in that sense, I think, and, and, and there also, I spend less and less time in arguing whether racism exists or not, but even in whether an incident is racist or not, is because I think we all need to go home and do homework and try to understand that racism is not about good versus bad people. It's a thing you cannot avoid if you grow up in the West, full stop. Not even persons like me, right? So it's a whole system that needs unlearning and dismantling. And the way that we can know for sure that racism is still a thing is that if we go and look at the color palette of the people that are most likely to be in poverty anywhere in the world, but also here, it's still along racial lines, similarly to gender issues and all of that. So we don't even need to spend so much time in trying to get that. And so if we were to clear the space by not paying so much attention to the hurt feelings of a, of a maybe a white majority that, um, there's so much of our energy that goes into making sure that we don't hurt people's feelings by maybe mistakenly calling them racist because we individualize it, that a lot of the work that we could have done to actually dismantle it, to make it that if you want to cross the Mediterranean with certain documents or with certain color of skin, whether you die or not, that's what it is about, right? So I think I really agree with, with the, the nature of your question. It is about institutions and systems, but then how do we translate that into daily individual choices that are being made that we make as professionals, as how we raise our children, as all of that, right? So the institutions are also made through individual acts, but consciousness raising is not gonna rid this world of racism, right? Racism is the, is the ideology that we need to have a particular division of who gets to live, who gets to die, and economics are also deeply entangled into that, right? So, but I would say, let's, let's try not to, to spend too much time and energy on feeling guilty or not, or deciding who should feel guilty or not, or whose feelings are hurt or not. And if we're gonna do that, let's refocus it on the people that likely do not survive a trip across the Mediterranean or something like that. And that requires a, a lot of thought. And so similarly, if we think of uh, repatriation of, of, um, of, of artifacts, I think it's, uh, for me, it's. I'm going to say symbolic, but not to, to, to make it less important, but it's the symbolic way through which we understand how unwilling we are to actually radically change things. It's the same way as Colston's statue being brought down. Like for me in Belgium, we're finally getting rid of some Leopold II squares and, and, and statues. How people do not understand that, again, that should not require more than five minutes. Let's put them in museums. Let's not talk about this. That's not even the point, but the fact that we don't. But the fact that we think, oh, we can't give back the stuff that we stole because they don't know how to take care. All of that, it's like there is something nonsensical about how much weight it has. But pedagogically, I will, I will use it in class as a starting point, as a way to understand where is the resistance. We can't even give back literally what we stole, stuff that we just go on a Saturday afternoon to watch. That's it doesn't even touch necessarily everybody else of our lives, right? So I, I welcome these discussions to, to highlight to highlight what we're not willing to do in a way. Um, um, so, so in that sense, I would never dismiss any of these symbolic conversations, but it's really important to tie it back to the political economy of who gets to live and who dies and we go on with our lives kind of thing. Thank you. And I would just add to that, that I think sort of going back to what I said earlier, talking about the specificities of colonial history can actually help in educating young people to know about why repatriation is important, why, why we even talk about it, why people get upset about it, why people want it, right? I think so much of what we've been talking about today about how 
empires continue to exist and just how you know you start the conversation not with is is racism real but we know it's real we know it's a structure we know that it impacts institutions and individuals is about centering again the importance of telling histories about about colonialism right and not falling into this trap of repeating the myths of not um trying to perhaps follow a certain political um, agenda because of the contemporary political situation that we find ourselves in. I think it is about making complex um, the legacies and the reality of empire for today. Mike, would you like to add something? Yes, quickly. I mean, uh, uh, so I think the issue of museums is exactly, it's very similar to the non-doms, isn't it? I mean, the whole institution museum is based upon plundering other parts of the world appropriating artifacts and artworks and putting them in the imperial metropolis. Um, and then they become commercialized, just like the non-dom has become a commercial mechanism. Now, of course, the tourist industry in London depends upon who wanting to come to the British Museum. Uh, and so it's absolutely another example of that. So we do have to take that very seriously. We do have to think politically and symbolically, but also, I'd also emphasize economically. So it's mm -hmm. about an, the economic, economic structure, which we, which we have to live with too. Um, so yes, it's, it's, it's a vital step. Thank you so much. Shall we take one last question from the audience? Uh, maybe the gentleman at the back here, or the, uh, the person at the back here, yeah. Um, thank you for your thorough insights. Uh, my name is Alex Ivaneko. I'm an undergrad student of the International Social Policy with Development. And I want to ask a question about kind of to what extent should we question the notion of a nation um, I find that the core of the discussion of, of any colonialism, of existentialism, basically. Uh, so we've got all the ethnic groups in one region, and then they were pushed to find a common cultural identity, which erased local, local cultures, local religions, etc. Um, so think about how the UK colonialism of, of Wales and Scotland destroyed the uh, their local cultures because they were being then pushed with the with the idea of the United Kingdom of the basic of the, uh, of the England and especially I find it important in the capitalist world of today where economic power determines the role in the international politics it is a worthwhile goal to strive for self determination and focus on the on the preservation of the cultural um, Kind of like specificity of a of a given region. However, if we now strive for self uh, self determination, if we split a country into multiple ethnic groups, then they lose their economic power, and then they will be vulnerable to economic um, uh, colonialism. And I especially view it as uh, in the kind of comparing China, how it used to be colonized by the Western powers. And now there is the current reaction to the growing China and the, the growing of xenophobia because it's becoming a major, major power like Japan did in hundred years ago. Thank you. Yeah, uh, would anyone like to start? Um, I'm trying to compare it to the question about Christianity, right? Because I do think that sometimes we try and find this one source of all evil um, and maybe rather more than nations nationalism, let's let's have that as an idea. And I know, and I know, like for me, a lot of my thinking about nationalism came actually from the anti-colonial struggles. So there, it was 
It was less straightforward that I saw it as an evil thing. I know that nationalism has been used to kick out the colonizers. So in that sense, it's, it's again, quite difficult to just say it's good or bad. Um, it's been the sources also of elites that usually would not come together, come together again against, against another, whatever. Uh, but having said that, I do think that nationalism, certain forms of certain practices of religion, whatever, they do not address the desire of, 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 of control and often of control of others or the fact that distinguishing oneself from others is again, not a problem in and of itself, but if it's used to beforehand already make claims on resources, on being able to organize life for others, that's much more the problem. So in that sense, I think it's useful to think what aspects of nationalism are wrong or in what instances do we use nationalism to continue colonial logics and at what brief moments in history has it been used for the opposite? So that would be my answer to that. I, I do see, uh, but at the same time as well as, as Mike was mentioning, our nation state, we, have, we, we think that there were nation states, but there were empires, right? So it's, it's, we have to think about, is it just the labels and the names that we're using? Or can we actually dig in the logics that they perpetuate? And if there are logics of coloniality, it should go. But if they enact other things under the same banner, then yeah, it's not a really good answer, but that, that's, that has been my thinking. Thank you for your question. Yeah, I think I, I would also agree. I think as you were speaking, I was thinking about how so much of um, perhaps in historical literature we've been or historians have been so focused on on the nation state without really understanding or taking seriously just how closely connected imperialism was with nationalism, with the nation state, how the two fed off each other in certain ways, in certain times, in different periods. Um, but there's a there's a whole load of um, multiple sort of definitions of nationalisms, right, that I think is also tied to economic points and political points as well. But I think your question speaks to a really close relationship between the two. I'm at, well, I'll, I'll just agree. I think, I think we, we absolutely need to recognise that nation, the national project and the imperial project is intrinsically intertwined in many cases, particularly I think the British case is a really strong example of that. But, I, I'm not sure we, 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 we can dismiss all forms of nationalism, in fact, you know, because it has been used progressively in certain quarters. And if, if we are to also say that we can't use that, then what options are we looking for? What, what are our political repertoires to actually bring about uh, change which doesn't involve dismantling empires? I just, on this point, a few years ago, I was involved in interviewing British people, actually, about attitudes toward Brexit and nationalism and xenophobia. And I was very struck about some Brits had a view of Britain as being the best country in the world, very imperial view, you know, we are the best, you know, British way is best. Others, it was much more, you know, it's much more personal, but given accounts of where they've been brought up and what the country meant in more personal terms, it didn't seem to have that air of ag aggrandizement and um, aggression and competitiveness. And I think it's important to hold on to that notion that you, you know, you, you can be nationalistic uh, and not necessarily buy into the imperialist um, rhetoric. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. We could have had this discussion for hours and hours, <laughs> right? Uh, so thank you so much for our speakers for a fascinating discussion, which I hope you all enjoyed. And uh, many of our events from this week are already available as podcasts, so please do check out the LSE player for the events that you have missed. If you would like to stay for our final festival event, it takes place at 5.30. It is on the challenges on wealth inequality and will be followed by a drinks reception, open to all to celebrate a great, a great week of events. So, and to finish off, please join me uh, 
uh, in a round of applause for our speakers. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.